Hello and welcome! My name is Joanna Yunak and this is GFN News on GFN.tv. In today's news, Philippines' Vaporized Nicotine Products Regulation Bill has lapsed into law. Peter Dator, President of Vapors Philippines, will tell us more. Colin Mendelssohn is with us to discuss youth vaping and the black market for vaping products in Australia. Samrat Chaudhry, leading consumer advocate from India, will share his thoughts on smoking and vaping in India today. And after the news, Brent Stafford of RecWatch interviews Ricardo Polosa, the founder of the Center of Excellence for the Acceleration of Harm Reduction at the University of Catania in Italy. Before we go over to today's news, we would like to remind you that from now on, each episode of GFN News is also available as a podcast. Find us by searching for GFN News on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcast. In the Philippines, we reported earlier in the year that the new vape bill was unable to become law without the signature of former President Rodrigo Duterte. Duterte failed to do so before being ousted from office by new President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. The new president had 30 days from receiving the bill to sign or veto it. As he did neither, the bill lapsed into law on 25th July. We asked Peter Dator, president of Vapors Philippines, to explain to us the current situation in the Philippines regarding the vape bill. Good, good day, guys. Um, see, Joanna, here in the Philippines, bills cross over from the previous administration to the new administration. That's not something that's, uh, that's pretty common here in, in the Philippines. Um, you see, from the, we have here a concept, what we call as the enrolled bill. So when the final uh, version of the bill is submitted to the president, um, it has the name of the president, the name of the heads of Congress and our Senate. Here, what happened was the bill, the vape bill was sent to President Duterte on the 24th of uh, um, June. And under our Philippine constitution, um, the sitting president could either sign it, don't do anything about it, or outright veto it. Um, because that's what our constitution here in the Philippines says. However, um, we had an election. On the 30th of June, the term of President Duterte uh, ended. Uh, and now we have President Bongbong Marcos, who's actually um, the one who's left to be the decision maker on what will happen with regards to the pending bills from the previous administration. You need to understand that the office of the president is a um, continuing uh, office. It's just so happened that there are names, that, that there are certain timelines um, that we need to follow as mandated by our constitution. Um, like I said earlier, Joanna, it's very common here that there are a lot of uh, bills from the previous administration that um, was not acted upon and eventually process over to the new one, as in the case of the vape bill. Um, what happened was, when it was submitted to President Duterte, the name on the bill as signatory, as signatory was President Duterte. 
do not get me wrong, as far as I know, President Bongbong Marcos can still sign it during his term, but it just would be an absurd situation whereby the name is of a different person, but it will be the sitting president who will sign for it. In the same manner, uh, occurrences wherein um, the laws are being allowed to lapse, the, the, the bills are being allowed to lapse into law, is very common here in the Philippines. And uh, just to give a, a wider perspective to, our, to your viewers is that upon sitting as president, President Marcos has vetoed two bills prior to the vape bill or the vape law lapsing into law on the 25th of July. So I would suppose that, uh, you know, his team, the, the people running a government right now knows of these laws or of these pending bills from the previous administration. Um, I might not be correct, but at least three to five pending bills were vetoed by the president today. Um, and I think that the position papers submitted by different organizations, uh, different uh, secretaries who supported the bill might have, uh, you know, uh, encouraged the president to allow the vape law to lapse into a law. Um, if there's any takeaway, I, I suppose that our current president is uh, is an ally of uh, tobacco harm reduction, or at least he believes in it. We also ask Peter about the next steps and what regulations are in force now. Um, the next step in our legal process, Joanna, is um, it has to be published. Um, we, we have an official uh, um, publication in one of our government agencies, but I understand that the full text of the law was published in a newspaper of general circulation last July 28. So usually after 15 days, it takes effect. And then the primary agency uh, will have to come up with uh, internal rules and regulations on how to go about in implementing the new law. Because the law, the vape bill, is technically not yet in effect, we're still following the old executive order issued by the President uh, Rodrigo Duterte, which was, uh, there's still a, you can only it's very strict. Um, you can only sell approved flavors. So that's, that's still the one that is in effect, uh, Joanna. Until, until the vape bill takes effect. So that's probably 15 days from, not counting the Saturdays and Sundays, 15 days from July 28. Now to Australia. From the 1st October 2021, consumers must present a valid prescription from the medical practitioner for all purchases of nicotine vaping products, such as nicotine e-cigarettes, nicotine pots, and e-liquid. We asked Dr. Colin Mendelson, tobacco treatment clinician and founding chairman of the Australia Tobacco Harm Reduction Association, about the influence this regulation has had on vaping among young people and the black market in vape products. Yes, look, the government introduced new regulations back in October, which require uh, vapors to get a prescription from a doctor for possessing nicotine and to use nicotine liquid. And it's actually a criminal offense not to have one. Uh, but of course, it's not working. I mean, it's too difficult to get a prescription. Um, 
Doctors won't prescribe vaping because the government's opposed to it. Um, and vapors don't see why they should have to get a prescription for what's a much safer product. You can go to any corner store and buy cigarettes. So why should you have to get a script for, for vaping, which is much less harmful and is life-saving for so many people. So most actually don't have a script. Um, and some vapors have gone back to smoking, which is, which is a tragedy. And not surprisingly, the black market has exploded. So it's just so much easier just to go to a tobacconist or a convenience store. And so many of them stock these illegal products under the counter. So millions of illicit disposable vapes are being imported from China every month into Australia. Um, these products are not regulated. We don't know what's in them. There's no quality assurance. Uh, they're being sold freely to young people. Um, and, and because of that, the, the anti-vaping advocates are calling for a ban. They're saying, well, goodness, all the young people are using these products, we have to stop vaping. Uh, and of course, that's not the solution. Um, and what's also worrying is that the legal regulated vape industry is being decimated by the illegal sale of these disposable products. So legal businesses that sell vaping devices and nicotine-free products are really feeling huge financial stress and they are, are, are closing. Some of them are closing because their customers are going to buy these black market products because they're just so easy to buy. And the black market's making a huge fortune and you can be sure that the criminal gangs will be moving in very quickly. But the solution is very simple. It's not rocket science. You know, we need sensible regulation to make these life-saving products available to adult smokers who can't quit because it will improve their health. Uh, we need to provide quality products and we need to regulate them so they are good quality products. And look, young people shouldn't be vaping and we need um, appropriate restrictions to prevent access by young people to products that are illegal and are, that aren't good for them. And we need to find that balance and just eliminate this prescription model and uh, create a system that will work for both groups. And unfortunately, our government doesn't see the sense in that at the moment. And we've got a, a very dysfunctional uh, regulatory system at the moment because of it. As part of GFN News series of Country Spotlights, we are going to India. Tobacco is one of the major causes of death and disease in the country, accounting for nearly 1.3 million deaths every year. India is also the second largest consumer and producer of tobacco. Safer nicotine products, which potentially could be helpful in quitting smoking, were available till September 2019. After that date, the government announced a complete ban on e-cigarettes, saying that this regulation presents potential health risk to India's youth. I asked Samrat Chaudhry, consumer advocate, a few questions about the situation in India today. Thank you, Samrat, for joining us. Can you tell us what you do and what is your area of interest? Okay, I'm uh, Samrat Chaudhry. I'm a consumer advocate from India. I have been a journalist for most of my career, for almost 20 years, and uh, and I have been a lifelong smoker. So was my father, but after he passed away, I uh, you know I was quite serious about quitting, and I tried a lot of uh, ways. I tried gums, patches. I went to the doctor, 
prescribed me a lot of medicines which gave me headaches and you know didn't didn't work they were not long term solutions you know i would stay quit for a while and then i'd be back <clears throat> then i tried vaping a, a colleague at work uh, and surprisingly from the sports desk <laughs> in her office uh, he was vaping and i and i saw to try you know once and i was amazing because uh, you know every time that i was trying to quit earlier there was a nagging feeling at the back of my head that you know you want to smoke you want to smoke and that feeling would win over after some time but with vaping a week later i was surprised that i had not touched smoking even once i had not missed it because you know uh, vaping was addressing both the behavioral aspect and of course the nicotine aspect so that was like the eureka moment for me and i and i you know for the first time realized that it is possible to get off smoking uh, there was a dual phase use for a while and then finally i think about year year and a half later i completely switched also the devices then were you know not that good and they would keep failing and as the devices got better it became easier to transition and so i did and once i did uh, uh, you know that was the time when the government of india was also seriously considering what to do about vaping and then some states started banning vaping and that's when we thought okay let's organize let's do something about it let's stem the tide of bans and that's when we formed uh, you know a official consumer group we got it registered it's one of the oldest in asia and then started fighting against these bans you know initially we thought that it would be quite simple it's you know it's fairly uh, evident that india has a huge tobacco problem 13 and a half uh, 1.3 million people die from tobacco use every year and this is a ready solution you know we do also don't have that many resources to provide cessation support and counseling and support you know 267 million people who used tobacco and here was a solution that could help a lot of people and so the government would look at it favorably but what we didn't factor in was uh, two things maybe one the anti tobacco groups who are out for against anything you know any innovation in tobacco and of course the government's own interest in the tobacco trade because the government directly participates or owns a major part of the largest tobacco company so we had a ban and you know here we are fighting against it is the government of india supporting people to have better access to safer nicotine products sure see i i, I don't have very good news from india you know because i think uh, the problem or the main problem is uh, the tobacco is seen uh, essentially from the financial angle and not from the health perspective even though it's a major health issue you know tobacco is the largest killer of indians by any measure and yet uh, the whole situation is viewed mostly from the financial perspective you know how much revenue the government earns uh, how much land uh, is under tobacco cultivation i mean strangely this year the amount of land under tobacco cultivation went up in india you know which is which is against anything uh, any tobacco anti tobacco measure uh, and that's because they are viewing it from farmers perspective from uh, employment perspective and not necessarily from the health perspective so the policies are in that sense very skewed and uh, and i don't think they are helping anyone because first of all uh, the entire focus is on cigarettes and cigarettes is a very small component of tobacco use in the country the large the largest uh, you know product uh, which is used the most is a smokeless tobacco product which is again very deadly leads to about 350000 deaths a year and the next is bd which is a hand rolled tobacco which leads to almost a million deaths a year so there's no action on those those are you know hardly taxed they are available very cheap and it seems that entire focus is on cigarettes uh, which doesn't help much so the policies uh, 
you know, are, they're looking good on paper and they can win you WHO awards. But, you know, when you live in India and when you see what's happening around you, then you realize it's it's not really effective uh, and it's not being viewed correctly. You know, and the other problem is that while, you know, people in the health ministry and the government keep saying that nicotine is really addictive, it's 3,000 times more addictive than heroin. That's what the health minister said in parliament two years ago. There is, there is no... Uh, real action on providing smokers and tobacco users support. So there's no in-person counseling. NRTs, instead of being subsidized, are being taxed at the highest lab. So, so there's no meaningful support. So I, I mean, I wish, uh, you know, there was a relook on how tobacco policies in the countries are being viewed. So instead of helping smokers, uh, I mean, to give you an example, you know, uh, the, the taxes on cigarettes were not raised for the last two years, but they raised taxes on NRTs. So I, I don't think there is a, there's a good thinking on this. And I wish there was a, a little more pro people and how to help people and what people are going through and their struggles and involving you know tobacco users in policy making. None of that is happening currently. And I wish that things. When the government or other organizations in India give people reliable information regarding using safer nicotine products, and show them how these products can be used to quit smoking, do you think the smoking rate will drop? Oh, certainly. You know, uh, information is one thing. I think a lot of people are aware of tobacco harms. Uh, what they uh, are confused about or often don't know is how to quit. So then you have a proliferation of all these quack, uh, you know, remedies. So the local remedies, someone comes up and says, okay, you do meditation and you can quit. Uh, I think our health minister once said you can have chocolate, you know, so so, uh, so people know that uh, tobacco use is harmful, but what they're not being told is the correct way to quit. And I think a lot of it comes from a misconception uh, that tobacco use or people are using tobacco out of choice. Like, you know, they're waking up every morning and making a decision to smoke, which is not true entirely because they are dependent. They require support. And that's, that's where the you know, chain breaks. So a lot of these efforts are, okay, you, know, you can quit on your own and all you need is willpower. But we know that willpower-backed attempts succeed only 5% of the time. So we need more effective solutions and correct dissemination of information from the government. Now, you know, in 2019, they banned vaping. Now that's going to send out a message. And at the same time, they did not raise taxes on cigarettes for two years. So what, is, what kind of message is that sending people? So I think there is a serious miscommunication and also through policy measures and taxation measures. But if people have the right information, I'm sure no one wants to die from smoking. So they would make the right choices if they were given options at affordable price prices and the availability was good. Thank you, Samrat, for sharing your thoughts. And now we go over to Brent Stafford and his guest, Professor Ricardo Polosa the founder of the Center of Excellence for the Acceleration of Harm Reduction at the University of Catania in Italy. Ricardo is actively involved in smoking prevention and cessation. He established the first Sicilian Center for Smoking Cessation at the University of Catania in 2002. In today's interview, Ricardo challenges misinformation around the health impacts on vaping and shares research that shows Nicotine vaping products are less harmful. Over to you, Brent. 
Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. We're here in Warsaw, Poland for the Global Forum on Nicotine, and joining us is Dr. Ricardo Pelosa from the University of Catania. How's it going? It's going well, thank you very much. You know, the last time that you and I spoke, it was really all about Evali. And you just finished doing some interviews with CNN Europe. What did you think of the questions they were asking you? I think that, that it's very stupid to keep talking about uh, Evali today. I think what we really need to do today is to stop a minute and rewind. What do I mean? I mean that we should show the world that all the Valley case was a big bluff and now that there's not a single Valley case in the world that makes a case for the legal nicotine products. So if you really want to talk about the scare about nicotine, uh, legal nicotine products all around the world, just show that there's no Valley anymore. So where does the research stand right now coming out of your uh, center about the harm or lack of harm with regarding nicotine vapes? Okay, our center is focusing on uh, different uh, um, directions. One uh, first direction is to make sure that these uh, products uh, do indeed uh, have less harm. So I guess one of the most interesting studies we've completed recently and was published in Nature last uh, uh, year in December was a sort of a ring trial of, uh, of uh, cytotoxicity of the products. Basically what we did was to take some of the most quoted papers from the industry showing that there was no cytotoxicity associated with the use of these products and we replicated in a way that five different labs all around the world using the same harmonization procedures, same standards, same equipment, the same products were going to provide the same results. And so that happened. So we basically five different labs demonstrated very low cytotoxicity level of electronic cigarettes compared to the huge cytotoxicity levels of tobacco combustibles. And, you know, help our viewers understand this and myself a little bit better, is the cytotoxicity linked to immune system issues? Not really. Cytotoxicity can be partly linked to immune system, but uh, the way I see it, it's cytotoxicity is the first stage of a damage that can lead to several diseases, particularly cardiovascular and respiratory. In some, some areas, it can be also be accepted to the area of oncology. Although in that area, you do different types of experiment called mutagenesis, genotoxicity, uh, and, and so forth. So, but it's, in my opinion, is the first indicator that the product is uh, uh, non or toxic. Uh, a big interview we did with you back in December of 2017 was for a story titled Case Closed. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, really responded well to that. Um, is the case closed in terms of the harms with vaping today? Even more so. If you think historically, when you did the 
analytical uh, evaluation of these products in, let's say, 2009. I still remember FDA uh, evaluating these products and identifying some very nasty chemicals in the products. So I see over the last decades or so, uh, there's been an overall improvement in the quality and safety of these products, including the liquids. So this is an innovational product. It's going to go improve itself over the years. Of course, some level of, uh, of uh, checks in terms of standard, uh, standardization, safety, quality control, quality assessment is needed. Uh, but I, I can see a very pinky future for these products and cases closed. One of the charges against uh, that piece of research and others is that it's not a long-term study. It's not longitudinal, right? Is that still an issue? Because it's something we still hear today that there's no long-term studies. I think you're referring to the study in which we assessed a high-resolution CT scan of the lung, which was carried out for an average period of four years. Four years is a decent time, but it really depends on the research question that you're asking. The research question we were asking at that time was, if I investigate a vapor who never smoked in his life, what I'm going to see down in his lungs? And we decided to use high resolution CT scan because it, it is, still is the most sensitive way to assess damage in the lung. At that time, although a very small population, very small sample size, we could not spot one single subject in any of the subjects, uh, any lesions measured by high resolution CT scan. Of course, it would be ideal to have a very large study with hundreds of vapors who never smoked in their life to be followed for at least five to ten years to have a final answer to that question. And that's difficult to kind of generate that research, isn't it? It is. It is, but we do know now that uh, um, these products have been around for more than 10 years. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, none of the legally marketed nicotinized vaping products have ever caused any form of the disease. So let me ask you about Canada, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know that they legalized vaping and it, that became law in 2018 and all of a sudden, you know, we had a legal vaping market. But the moral panic over the so-called teen vaping epidemic and then hit with a valley the year later has left the Canadian vaping industry and consumers of vaping products pretty much out in the cold. Like the Health Canada cut nicotine concentrations by over half. They're threatening for, uh, you know, a full flavor ban. Um, and they're mimicking pretty much the same concerns that come out of the anti-vaping advocacy effort in the U.S. What can, as a scientist who spends a lot of time you know, studying this area, what can we offer Health Canada uh, in terms of some insight on the science that could make a difference? I'm, I'm very open to any uh, regulators or politicians, policy makers or colleagues that really want to approach me and trying to have a, um, you know, a civil discussion about science, about quality science. Um, what I think most of these reactions that Canadians are having are based on um, emotion. 
not science. Uh, all the Valley case, we already just discussed about that uh, just a minute ago, is simply uh, due to a contamination of a product into a sort of an illegal product. So nothing to do with the legal nicotine vaping product. So why mixing the, the two uh, bags? Why taking oranges and making them apples? Why are you so scared about that? Let's be honest, I think that there is an agenda. And the agenda is uh, let's get rid of vaping products. And they're trying to cover uh, this uh, um, prohibitionistic agenda by leveraging uh, Evali or the teen vaping epidemics that we know it doesn't exist anymore. It's never been a real epidemic, to be honest. Uh, by definition, an epidemic needs to reach some levels. And if you look uh, at, those, uh, at the federal surveys of those uh, very famous NYTS and HIS, the various surveys that have been run to substantiate the scare, there is actually no scare. Because most of the guys, most of these kids, most of these young adults were already smoking, the vast majority. And people tend to forget that. So basically, vaping has been acting as a gateway out of smoking, no gateway into smoking. And in any case, I think it's uh, very honest to say that we really need to keep vigilant to maintain uh, the monitoring uh, through this uh, service and see what's going to happen in the next two, three years. Because to be honest, Ivali may have introduced some big bias in the uh, um, you know recording of this survey. So. Maybe I would say the jury is still out, but for that exact reason, you don't have to rush and make policies uh, out of the way right, uh, right now. We can just wait a couple of years, nothing is going to happen. And maybe we're going to get away with a better decision for the best good of all the Canadians and Americans. What do you make of the statement that nicotine harms developing brains? I have mixed feelings. Most of the evidence is based on uh, animal data. Uh, so uh, it is very difficult for me to try and translate animal data into human beings, as you can imagine. I always very much opposing this uh, way of dealing with science. You know, you have a demonstration in rodents, it needs to actually work in humans. Never, it never does. Not even when you study drugs that works in rodents eventually will work in humans. At least in respiratory field, uh, there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of article, articles that they are dismissing this view. Um, of course, minors should not take any nicotine. That's that's a fact. Uh, minors should not drink any alcohol. Minors should not drink any coffee. That's the point. So let's be more uh, focused on implementing the existing law. Now there is a T21. Okay, that's fine. It's a good to have a T21. Good to have raised the limit of usage to, to psychoactive uh, drugs 
to uh, a level of uh, 20 years old. But if you don't implement those laws, you're not doing anything. And then we are back to base. We are thinking about banning flowerings, banning products. Uh, to what end? We are going to damage adults that they are making a great use of these products and they are really uh, being successful in quitting for good. Dr. Pelosi, what's your thoughts with regard to this phenomenon we're seeing where academics who, you know, are open to tobacco harm reduction and tobacco harm reduction research are being ostracized and sometimes cancelled from participating in some aspects of the scientific community. What do you know about that and what are your thoughts? I always thought academic freedom had no boundaries. Um, so my thought is uh, it's a kind of a negative one. I think you have to look at the science, wherever comes this science. Um, and this is it, basically. I don't, I don't think there's anything else to say. I think people that apply ostracism to colleagues is always a bad thing. You just need to come and have a civil discussion with the data and discussing just about science. And lastly, for those uh, people out there in the regular general public who seem to be distrustful of science, what do you say about that with regard to tobacco harm reduction? I mean, is, is there a, a legitimate reason to distrust science? And maybe on both sides there's a distrust. Well, uh, distrust, uh, it, it, it is a way to minimize the position of who is proposing, um, um, you know, a, a theory over another. Um, I really think there is no such thing like the perfect study. So based on that, we all need to be aware that even our science it may not be perfect. And it, it is perfectable though, but it can be perfectable only if you um, discuss it, particularly with the opponents, because they can be a very good critics of your work. But this works both ways. Yeah, the opponents don't seem so open to sitting at the table. Exactly. I'm, I'm very open. I, I try to criticize myself before publishing any paper. My discussions are full of limitation and in fact my opponents, they just parrot what I already said in my limitation chapter in the discussion. Well, your work, uh, Dr. Plosa, is inspirational for me. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Hi there, can I ask you a quick question? It's just for Global Forum on Nicotine. I'm just wondering, is this the first time you've uh, yes. been, been here in person? Yes, it is. What do you think so far? Um, well, the topic is totally new for me. New people, uh, new reading material that I collected. So it's very exciting and that's... Uh, I've worked in harm reduction before. So tobacco harm reduction is... Um, a drug harm reduction, I mean. So tobacco harm reduction is different but I, I can see the, the importance of it. Are the principles the same? Yes they are. It's reducing the harm and if people can't stop using whatever they're using then you have to help them to reduce the harm and have them live the way that they want to. Do you think that tobacco harm reduction 
is a valid application of the harm reduction theory? I think it is. I think it is. It works in the same way, at least that's what I understood from the three days that I've been here. So I think it's just the same way of applying harm reduction. Because I'm a pharmacist by training, so I'm pretty much interested in seeing you know, the latest developments in harm reduction. So not my first time. Right, so the strap line for the event uh, this year is tobacco harm reduction here for good. Is it here for good? Yeah, it definitely is here for good, yes. It, it has changed the whole thing. If you look at in the past, it was pretty much a pharma thing, right? So you can see now that the companies are developing, are moving, are transforming themselves. So it's definitely it's for good. Have no doubt about it. How about you? What do you think of the conference so far this year? Well, I think for me it's one of the best conferences regarding harm reduction, actually, and in which you know you can find people with completely different backgrounds uh, talking about you know the same topic and following a kind of same goal. So I really believe it is very useful and very interesting in general, and we are you know going forward and uh, hopefully uh, in a short period of time uh, getting new new things uh, you know regarding this. Uh, relevant topic that is harm reduction. Yeah. How's the conference going for you this year? What's been your favorite session? Yeah, um, <clears throat> the nicotine, the effects of nicotine. I am a smoker, I am a journalist too, but I don't have in my hands or uh, maybe for the, for the regulation in Spain that is really strong, I don't have information and for me it's really new. Is this the first time you've attended a GFN event in person? No, actually, it's the probably sixth or seventh time. I'm, I'm an aficionado of the event since the very early um, stages of it. Why is that? Because I think this is honestly one of the best events, if not the best event, uh, around tobacco, nicotine and harm reduction. I think the quality of the discussions, it's something that's unmatched in, in, other, in other events around the world. And I have to say, the quality of the people you meet, the, the conversations you can have are just of a different level. What are, what are some of the best sessions? Look, yesterday I, I loved a lot the one on misinformation uh, because I do think that's one of the key topics we need to face, address uh, as an industry at large if we really want to convert all smokers to smoke-free products and make sure we get rid of cigarettes as soon as possible. Why is the consumer important in this whole mix? Well, because we are the stakeholders. And if it was in any other situation, you know, whether it was to do with drugs, whether it's to do with patients' care in hospital, whether it's to do with um, blood cancer, I mean, you know, they have, they put a whole load of effort into bringing in the stakeholders in this because actually we are the experts of us. We are the experts. Nobody is more expert than we are. If in fact they were to ask us, which sadly they don't, you know, on the contrary, they ban us. You know, they ban people from coming to the GFN, which is ridiculous. I mean, this, I've been coming here since 2015, 2016. It is the one place, there are others, but in my opinion, this has always been the place where consumers and scientists and, and some industry as well, from both sides, can all get together and I, I love it, I've missed it. We've got people from uh, Malawi, uh, we've got people from uh, uh, the other side of Greece, we've got people from uh, Latin America, from Peru, from Costa Rica. I mean, we have brought them here because they do this voluntarily, they don't get any money, we can't give them money. 
and but we do pay for them to come to the GFN and the General Assembly. You know, that's the one conference in the year where we'll all be. And I think that says something about the GFN. That's all for today. Tune in next time here on GFN TV or on our new podcast for more tobacco harm reduction updates and Brands interview with Lindsay Stroud, director of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance's Consumer Center in the US. Thanks for watching or listening. See you next time.